0: Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. My name is Chris. Great to be with you again today. And as always, thank you for joining us. We have a really good episode today. We have Bobby Harrington. He is our point leader and co-founder of Renew.org. Really heads up a lot of what we do around here. And he is speaking on some of the culturally relevant things happening. And he's really talking and pinpointing the progressive nature of the shift in society that has been happening for probably the last 5, 10 plus years. He pinpoints some of the issues as he walks through the Resilient book and many of the issues that that book points out. We're going to have a few more sessions of this series. I just encourage you not to miss out. These are all going to be really good sessions.
1: So as you can see, we're in the midst of a, actually we just started last Sunday, a new series on Resilient, uh, which is the title of a book I, I helped uh Uh, create this book. I edited the book, and uh, churches all over the country are starting to use it. And as a church, we made a difficult decision that uh, we're going to go through the book. And why is that a difficult decision? We like to go through chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. We've just finished up in Luke, and uh, sometime this uh, summer, we're not sure the exact date, we're going to get back into uh, expository sermons. But we've made a decision to pause and to talk about what it means to be resilient, what it means to be faithful to King Jesus uh, in the midst of a huge challenge. And we started last week by talking about our hope in Jesus because it's so important. And this morning, I'm going to lay out for you the challenge of progressivism. Now, progressivism is a term that we're going to use that covers at least five things I'm going to explain to you. But uh, it is the dominant philosophy it is the dominant this dominant philosophy of our time. It is the dominant challenge to what we believe. It is the dominant challenge to how we live our lives. It is the dominant challenge to the morality that God calls us to live today. And it's capturing not only um, people who are not followers of Jesus, but people who are followers of Jesus. And we want to be resilient and stand firm and trust the Lord Jesus Christ for what he reveals in his inspired word. Um, I want to say this to you as I'm beginning. I wrestled big time uh, with recommending to the elders that we embark on this study. In fact, in a few weeks, I'm going to explain some things that happened as I was praying through it, but uh, just had a hard time because we've got to do this. But some people, even those of you who hear my voices now, you're going to have a hard time with it. And uh, I'm sorry that you're going to have a hard time with it. If it's anything in me and how I come across, because I I don't want I don't want to be the stumbling block. I don't want to be the cause. But what I do want you to know is that there are things that we need to hear and think through because uh, the times have changed. The world in which we live, the world in which our children and grandchildren live, is very different than it has been in the past. And uh, not only did I have difficulty with the series, but if I'm being transparent to kick this section off defining progressivism and diving right into the deep end, that was also very difficult. This is the 10th version of the sermon, just so you know. Uh, many, many many different versions getting to here. And uh, again, I just want to ask you to uh, reflect upon and do me the kindness of saying, is what Bobby is saying true? Not, I don't like the way he said it, or uh, that doesn't seem fair. So, no, I, just, I just want to ask you to ask the truth question. In fact, uh, here's what, what I want to say as we begin kind of bridging from last week to this week. And that is that I believe we've got to be tough-minded, but grounded in the hope of Jesus. And uh, it's the tough-mindedness I'm going to emphasize this morning. I like to preach sermons where I can give you practical how-tos and walk away and you know what you're going to do. Okay, I like to do that. But every once in a while, we gotta go deep and we gotta, get, we gotta go down into the weeds and we gotta say what's right and what's true and what's being said and how do we as Christians think about that? Now, when we do that, we're gonna face some challenges right now uh, that are really significant. And I just wanna say in the midst of challenges that Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Don't be, don't be distraught by challenges. You know, there was a time, if you go back, say, 40 or 50 years ago, where we as Christians had a home court advantage. And that was nice. It was nice for our kids. It was nice for many things, That, and that's changed. And unless God does a revival and changes the nation and goes back through all the institutions of society, this is the world in which we and our children and grandchildren are going to live. But it's a world in which we can be hopeful. And there's four reasons for hope that we talked about last week. Just to remind you of them. The first is we stand in what's true. Like, like the truth of life, the truth of Jesus, the truth of history, spiritual truth, the truth of God. Secondly, we we have heaven as our home. Our eyes, like Jesus' eyes, should be fixed on God's eternal promises. Because life passes fast, friends, and life is fragile. And the most secure thing are the things of God in eternity, and Scripture throughout teaches us to fix our eyes on the fulfillment of God's promises in eternity, and I can't wait. Thirdly, our identity, if we're in Christ, we have a different identity. We don't look at at people as black and white, male, female, uh, heterosexual, homosexual. All those categories are secondary to to, to two categories, who's made in the image of God, and who's been recreated in the image of Jesus. And if you're in Christ, your identity has been changed. And being in Christ means that we are forgiven. We're saints. We're heaven-bound. We have a new identity. We're literally, in the words of Ephesians, raised up in the heavenly realms with Christ, and that's who we are. Number four, our hope is grounded in God's care of us in this life. In the words of Psalm 23 verse 6, surely goodness and love will pursue us all the days of our lives and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we expect and we live in constant awareness that God's goodness is with us even as we face big challenges. Sound good everybody? Now we're going to be tough-minded but grounded in hope and I want to tell you why you want to do that. There was a book written several years ago called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And uh, here's the scandal of the evangelical mind. There wasn't one. Because Christians have a tendency in North America to be shallow, practical, what works for me, pragmatics. And it's like, well, it, you know, I just want to go with feelings and what works. And I'm just telling you again, you're going to have, we're gonna have to do better than that. And I'm gonna tell you, it's actually what God wants us to do. Jesus was once asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? So of all the things out there, what's the greatest commandment? And here's what he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your... That's right. So part of loving God is loving God with my mind. And we want to be people who are willing to be tough-minded and ask what's true, what's right? How can I think in alignment with what's true and what's right? Sound good? Keep, let's keep going. Now, here's where we're coming from as a society, as Americans, uh, as we look at our heritage and the shoulders on which we stand. Okay? So, this country and Western civilization was established on Judeo-Christian beliefs. In other words, here's what I'm not saying, by the way. I'm not saying that all the people who founded the country And who signed? You know, created the Constitution, the Declaration. I'm not saying they're all Christians, but I'm saying that they all had a foundation of beliefs that was based on uh, the uh, Deuteronomy, the the the, Deuteronomy, the 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 Jewish roots and the Christian roots in Jesus. So it's called the Judeo-Christian foundations. And what did that give us? Well, look at these four things. Uh, they established our cultural beliefs and values. They established a foundation for our laws and personal rights there 's a reason on the Supreme Court that you have Moses holding the ten commandments it 's the the cultural foundations of our country. They established the foundations for free speech, the First Amendment, and they were not perfect. I just kind of just we always have to acknowledge they were not perfect right there was uh, There was racism. There was a materialism. There is a, a violence that has been a part of the American experience. There's a, sometimes a, a faulty individualism. So I'm not saying it was perfect, but what I what we should say is that they made it easier to be a Christian. There was a there was a home court advantage if you called out and said, this is what the Bible says. And it was a good foundation. It was a far better foundation than you because, because God's law is good and what God advocates is good. And when we follow God's ways, it leads to human flourishing. Agreed? Because he's like a good father. And a good father would only give his children what's good for them. Okay? So what's happening? Well, it's been changing. Uh, there was an article that appeared a year ago in a journal called First Things That I Commend To You. forget his first name, but his last name is Wren. And uh, it's gotten a lot of people talking about it. And I think that he's established that this is a good framework. When you think of how the world looked at uh, conservative Bible-believing Christians in the period uh, up to 1994, it was positive. In the period from 1994 to about, 2014. It was neutral. So when we planted Harpeth Christian Church, it wasn't like you know there was a, you had to worry about what people are thinking about what you think about LGBTQ issues or you know Jesus the only way to salvation and all those things. It was more neutral. It was okay. You could advocate for things, but the world has changed, and the best posture by which you can describe the world's attitude toward the church right now is is going to be negative to hostile. And uh, we're going to unpack how that happened. And, and here's how it happened. Just describing uh, as best we can things. Uh, in the 1930s, there was an expression that some communists had. It's called the long march through the institutions of society. And then in the 1960s, there was a man, uh, Rudy Deutschky, And uh, he coined that phrase, and a lot of people said yes. So what had happened is in the 1960s, In the United States, there were radicals that wanted the country to go more socialistic and communist. Now, it was happening in Italy before that, and in other places. Um, It's it's happening still in places, for example, in South America, around the world today. But they came up with this expression: we can't win over the American population by armed conflict. Instead, we're going to adopt a strategy called the long march through the institutions of society. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to win over people in academics. We're going to try to win them over in the universities. We're going to try to present these views and advocate for these views in in those places. And by the way, oftentimes they were places where Christians had vacated. So here's what happened. I actually uh, did this personal research four years ago. When you map out who was teaching at universities who were conservative, and I'm going to explain that in just a second here, versus those who are more progressive, there's been a big transition. At this point in the sermon, I want to tell you something, just in case you're thinking it. I am not advocating for a political point of view. I'm not here to try to to persuade you not to be a Democrat or not to be a Republican. I'm just telling you, I think it's irrelevant. I think that politics is downstream from culture and where the culture goes, the politics follows. And I'm far more concerned about what's upstream in terms of what people believe. And I think if we wanna win this country over for the ways of Jesus, we're gonna have to go back through the institutions of society uh, and persuade everybody to surrender to King Jesus and his ways. And that's what a revival is. And I'm hoping and praying that happens. And if there's not a revival, then let's be that resilient, Faithful remnant for King Jesus. Because Jesus, like you know, what we want to do is we want to bow before the lamb, not ride a donkey or an elephant. All right? So I'm genuinely not, I I think that politics is too late. That the church and the way of Jesus is the priority. It always has been, but especially now for those that we care about and love. And so we as a church have to talk about these things. So when I say conservative, I'm talking about people who are advocating for more of the foundations of American society and culture. They would advocate for and uphold the Judeo-Christian foundations. Well, how did that change? Well, in 1969, only one in four were conservative. By 1999, it was only one in 10 were conservative. And by 2019, it was approximately one in 17. What does that mean, Bobby? Here's what it means. It means that if you send your kids to public institutions that are dominated by the values of a culture that no longer is based on the ways of Jesus, don't be surprised if they come back not thinking that way. In other words, if we don't want our children to be Romans, don't send them to get trained by the Romans. If we don't want our children to be secularists, don't send them to be trained by the secularists. And furthermore, all of us who live in that world and have had many conversations with many people living in this world right now, we've got we you got one of two choices. You can capitulate and cave, or you can be resilient and faithful and live through the the, the challenges. Now what are the challenges? I'm just gonna sum it up for you. In this statement of what a progressive is, it's a non Christian belief system that's dominating our institutions now. Started in the universities. It eventually took over the human resource departments. It's taken over mainstream media. It's taken over social media. Uh, spokespersons for it are people like Taylor Swift, who in her songs oftentimes uh, sings the anthems of progressivism. Uh, it's, it's everywhere you go, and it touches everything that you've seen. And everybody working in secular places today tends to know what I'm talking about. Somebody came up to me after the first service, talked about that they work in this high-profile position, but their boss is a transvestite doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, A friend of mine uh, called me and asked me to pray for him. He's uh, uh, in a medical institution that I won't name. uh, And he said, you know, me and the, the head guy that I report to, the CEO, we're both trying to follow Jesus, but we're getting so much pressure right now on this transgenderism stuff. I don't know if we can take it. And I've already decided if I lose my job, I lose my job. So when all of this stuff is going on, we owe it to ourselves to think clearly, to desire to honor King Jesus, to live in hope and in tough-mindedness. So what's a progressive? Someone who advocates for social equality through the lens of critical theory, which is basically communist ideals, and regularly pushes for more gains for feminism and LGBTQ plus rights. They're supportive of mere social programs directed by the state, more social programs directed by the state, and they'd like social justice movements to have more power. Here's what they want. They want to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, environmental, social, and governance. Now, when you read that, you're going to think, I'm for diversity. I, like, I, I think we all should be advocates for Racial, uh, racial equality and proper treatment of all people. Uh, we should be aware of that. But when I just want you to know that when they, when they talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, they don't mean what you think. They, they mean a way of looking at all those issues that's an entirely different lens that I'll introduce you to in just a second. And then more broadly, the ESG score, which in a couple of weeks when we have Coin Credit Union here, we're going to talk a little bit more about it's basically a way of discriminating against people who hold to Christian values. And it's coming at us like a freight train in ways that are hard to imagine. So, uh, how is this impacting us? Uh, three weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal published an article which was an extensive study on what's happened to American commitments and beliefs. And here's what they found out, that patriotism for the last, if you go back the last 25 years, is uh, dropping like a rock. Commitment to religion is dropping like a rock. In fact, uh, we've talked before here about the tremendous drop-off in the number of people who claim to be committed Christians, even having children. Last year, for the first time in American history, more women uh, uh, reached 30 years of age without children than with children. The number of children also born outside of wedlock right now is 40% for the first time uh, in U.S. history. And many people are just uh, despairing of even having children. How about community involvement? And then, of course, uh, you know, a desire for financial gain. So back to this, what's happening then? That's the the broad field in which we find ourselves. I'm going to take you through a couple of these five areas to help you to to make sense of what's happening. But before I do that, I'm just going to back up again. And I'm going to ask us, to look at what the Bible says about this. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and in Romans chapter 12, he's about to emphasize how we think about and interact with one another, especially in social settings. So this is a key passage, if you'd look at it with me. He says to everybody, do not conform to the pattern of this world, The world thinks one way, the world's living one way, but don't. As followers of King Jesus, don't do that. But be transformed by what? Be transformed by the renewing of our mind in the ways of God. And when we do that, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, what's God's will about diversity, equity, and inclusion? What's God's will about LGBTQ plus issues? What's God's will about ESG scores and all these things I'm using for you? By the way, there was a high school in Indianapolis uh, in the last couple of months where every student was evaluated with an ESG score. And of course, every devout Christian got a bad score because it's the lens of all these sexual uh, issues in our culture. So how do we handle this? Now let me tell you how we used to handle it, and I was a part of this. And uh, I've changed. Here's how we used to handle it: We used to want to build bridges with people. Uh, we would want people to come to church. We would want the sermons to be helpful for their lives and upbeat. And uh, we we would we would we harp us always dealt with the hard teachings, but we would oftentimes try to put them off to special classes and things like that. And uh, so like a series like what we're doing right now, 10 years ago, we might not have done it. But, but times have changed. We're living in a different uh, period. So let me uh, describe to you my biggest concern. There, there are uh, people who have been a part of Harpeth Christian Church. Uh, as JP pointed out last week, uh, if you were with us at the end of the teaching, We've been captured by the ways of the world and, uh, you know, are just, just following this progressivism. My, my biggest concern is not that people would become just totally secular progressives, but that we would think we can accommodate progressivism. We would think that somehow we can be Christians who uh, connect with and think like the world and yet take Jesus with us. So here's a definition of a progressive Christian for you. It's a Christian with more and more beliefs based on progressive ideals or explaining away scriptural teachings which conflict with progressive beliefs. So for example, you'll explain away uh, what scripture says about gender because that's considered misogynistic. Uh, You'll explain away what the Bible says uh, about marriage and the sanctity of marriage. Uh, about the permanence of marriage there 's just a tendency that anything with, that conflicts with progressive beliefs you 're going to find a way to make the Bible say the same thing that the culture does, uh, so that more and more the Christian and the church say the same thing as progressives. Does that make sense? Now, can everybody understand why that 's a temptation? Who wants to have the conflicts? Who wants to have people thinking that you 're a bad person because of what you believe? Who wants people to be excluded because of your beliefs? Does anybody want to sign up for that? And so what we think we can do, we think we can accommodate, and somehow we even, in our saintly ways, we think that Jesus can accommodate it for us. And here's what happens with progressive Christianity and progressive Christians. They think they're building an on-ramp to the faith, where they're helping people because they massage the teachings of Jesus. They're building an on-ramp to make Jesus more palatable In fact, what they're doing is they're building an exit ramp by which over time, more and more people will just abandon Jesus and the church because the church is saying the same things as the culture. Does that make sense, everybody? Listen to me. I've lived through this. You know, I became a follower of Jesus at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, because I grew up in a culture where progressivism got a foothold in the churches, when David and Young and I have talked about uh, our antipathy toward progressivism, it comes as a visceral reaction. Me, growing up in Canada and seeing how they totally undermined and destroyed the churches when the churches ended up starting to compromise and then the churches all collapsed because people say, well, I don't need the church. The church is saying the same thing as the culture. David Young, uh, doing his PhD in theology at Vanderbilt University, he told me every day for six years, I would spend time with progressives, and I know where it ends. And it's not good for the people of God. Real quickly, let's look at this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul describes it as spiritual warfare. Uh, in, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare in depth. We're going to do a deep dive in how this is really giving the demons and Satan a ground in our culture and in our country That they did not have before. And you may say to yourself, well, how do I know what spiritual warfare is? Let me tell you that the telltale sign of spiritual warfare is how we think. It's how we think and believe because Satan has come to rob, kill, and destroy, and he wants you to think things that are not true and they're not good for you that will lead to your destruction, that will lead to killing what's good, uh, and, and it won't be good. And so the Apostle Paul describes spiritual warfare as engaging in the battle for the mind. Here's how he describes it. Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. It's not a matter of guns and tanks or in his case, spears and shields and, and uh, Roman warriors. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, our weapons, he's gonna say, our weapons are the way that we think and it's the truth in Jesus. That's a weapon. It's a weapon to help people escape from demonic footholds. So the weapons that we fight with uh we have have a divine power to demolish strongholds we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So a pretension is uh it's it's something that you're thinking and you're maybe prideful about that's totally contrary to what God says. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we do what? We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so it's really a battle of the mind. I'm thinking this is true, but it's not true. And and through the ways of Jesus, I learned, don't think this way, think this way instead. Make sense, everybody? Say amen, please. This is what we're trying to do. So here's five things I want you to watch for. First is a movement from transcendent truth to the feeling self. So what's happened in our culture is that through a bunch of things, we've become a post-truth Uh, not just a post-Christian society, but a post-truth society where people say there is no truth, there's just perspectives on the truth. And that, you know, your opinions, you're trying to dominate me with your opinions, but my opinions are just as valid. Everybody's opinions on everything is just as valid. Everybody's got a bias. Everybody's got a perspective. Now, what that leads to then is, well, if there is no truth, then I just want to do what I feel like doing Some people call it the rise of the modern self. And what is the modern self? The modern self is somebody who just feels things. And whatever they feel, that's what they want to do. Now, I want to show you a clip that's funny. We got to admit this is funny, but it's tragic. Because it's describing the change that last year Gallup pointed out in Gen Gen Z. So that would be those who are 18 to 27 years of age and how their feelings are causing a total sexual revolution. Watch this. LGBT population of America seems to be roughly doubling every generation. According to a recent Gallup poll,
2: less than 1% of Americans born before 1946, that's Joe Biden's
1: generation, identify that way. 2.6% of boomers do. of Gen X, 10.5% of Millennials, and 20.8% of Gen Z, which means if we follow this trajectory, we will all be gay in 2054. Now, I do think you have to laugh, and then we need to probably cry. We're becoming Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a world where feelings Hey. I'm a biological man, but I feel like I'm a woman. I'm going to restrain myself for when we dive more deeply into these. Number two, from redemption to intersectional justice. You go, intersectional justice, redemption. So the dominant metaphor in American culture based on the teachings of Jesus uh, is that we live in a world of God's truth, and the most important thing at the center was redemption. It's God's redemption in Christ, but it's also individual redemption. Uh, it was said of Americans that they're very forgiving and generous people, and it's because the, dominant, uh, the dominance of the Christian story and narrative, and that's changed now where justice has changed, where justice is a really big deal to everybody who's oppressed at every different level, And now the idea through intersectionality, which they'll explain in this video, is that there's injustice everywhere, and your job and my job is to find injustice, to call it out, to cancel it, and to be activists against injustice using the lens, as I've said, of Karl Marx. Watch this.
2: Critical theory is one way our culture attempts to explain and confront power structures. Some Christians have embraced it as well. But what is it? To understand Critical Theory, we need to understand its two primary claims. First, everyone can be divided into two groups, those who have power and those who don't. Second, those who have power always oppress those who don't. But how do we know who the oppressed and who the oppressors are? According to Critical Theory, the categories of oppressor and oppressed are based on your group identity. Things like race, gender, religion, immigration status, income, sexual orientation and gender identity determine whether we are oppressed or one of the oppressors. Of course, someone might be part of an oppressed group in one way, but one of the oppressors in another way. That's where the concept of intersectionality comes in. Intersectionality seeks to measure someone's level of oppression based on how many of these groups they identify with. For example, a black man is less oppressed than a black woman who is less oppressed than a black lesbian. In critical theory, the degree to which you are oppressed determines your level of moral authority. The more categories of oppression someone identifies with, the more moral authority they have. As a result, the experience and perspective of a gay black woman is more valuable than the experience and perspective of a straight white man, regardless of what they have to say. And in the same way, the more oppressed someone is, the less moral responsibility for their actions. Those who aren't part of oppressed groups, straight white men, gain moral authority by surrendering to those who haven't, the oppressed. And this is called being
1: woke. So as you're uh, reading through the material, uh, we're gonna we're going to again dive more into this. Let me mention a couple more in the time that we have. The next is from complementarity to feminism. I might have said from complementarity to egalitarianism, but I'm going to use the word feminism because the new dominant philosophy is often described as intersectional feminism. And so there's a strong push to feminize everything and everywhere and for the feminine to become more dominant in our society. Now, it's often done uh, with just bold place uh, denying the realities of men and of women. And here's what I mean by that. We're actually going to do a deep dive on this as a church. Uh, I I spoke with uh, Doug Robertson, our executive minister this morning. And on June the 4th, we're going to do a deep dive on a Sunday afternoon and look at what does the Bible teach about uh, the role of a husband in marriage where he's called to be the head, like Christ is the head of the church. What does it say in terms of the teaching authority of the church and of the role of elders, which the Bible describes and prescribes as male only? So we're going to do a deep dive on that on uh, the first Sunday in June uh, in the afternoon. But here's uh, as we're going to work through this, I want you to see something. Once you give up the differences between men and women, and once you explain away the Bible passages that talk about the complementarity of men and women, then you can't say to somebody with legitimacy that uh, uh, a husband and wife is the only basis of marriage. Why not two women? Why not two men? Furthermore, you have difficulty saying, and I'll trace out why these are all connected, you have difficulty saying, if I feel like I'm a woman, even though I'm in a man's body, then I am a woman because I feel like it. And what arguments can you give about the distinctiveness of men and women if it's all just a social construct? Jordan Peterson, I want you to watch this clip. I debated using it, but I want to use it because of this reason. One of the things that I'm hoping that people at Harpeth Christian Church bear in mind is that there is a created order given by God. And when the Bible talks about this, it keeps pointing back to the created order is what we need to go back to as we think about men and women. Now, there is a very beautiful picture in the Bible where the role of a husband and the role of male leaders is to lay their lives down for their wives and lay our lives down for the church the way Jesus laid his life down for us. But right now, I'm not able to dive into that. I just want to ask you to think about the biological realities because we're different. Men have testosterone, women have estrogen, and it shows up differences in a lot of ways, and our culture is denying it. Let's watch what Jordan Peterson says. He's not a Christian guy, but on this point, uh, I think he's articulate in a helpful way.
3: Oh, because there's only two reasons that men and women differ. One is cultural, and the other is biological. And if you minimize the cultural differences, you maximize the biological differences. So, I know everyone's shocked when they hear this. This isn't shocking news. People have known this in the scientific community for at least 25 years. And it's been replicated in the last month three times in three separate samples, including in Science, which is the world's greatest scientific magazine by a large margin. And it isn't a small effect. It's a huge effect. But, so, but, Excuse me, what does it mean? Does it mean that Scandinavian men and women are having more difficulties meeting each other, talking to each other than other places? No, not necessarily, but it does mean that there are reasons for differences in uh, participation rates in different occupations that aren't a consequence of socialization. So, for example, as is especially true at the extremes, so, for example, um, on average, men are more interested in things and women are more interested in people. And that's actually the biggest difference we know of psychologically between men and women. And... And even though men and women are quite similar, all things considered, the extremes make a difference. So you imagine that in order to become an engineer, look, obviously not everyone becomes an engineer. You have to have a particular temperamental proclivity to become an engineer. You have to be extraordinarily interested in things rather than people. Well, most of those people are men. And if you want to become a nurse, well, then you have to be much more interested in people than you are in things. And most of those people are women. And so you get differences in occupational choice that are also, by the way, quite great in Scandinavia, especially in the case of engineering and nursing. That are mostly due to biological differences, and you cannot minimize that by social engineering. So, and, and it's not a bad thing. Like, look,
1: notice that woman was thinking this is a bad thing. <laughs> Here's the reality, uh, and I'm going to come to this um, as as my my fifth point. There are narratives that are being pushed with religious zeal, and one of them is this egalitarian, feministic thing that denies the reality that men and women are different, and there's a complementarity created by God that when we are in step with the complementarity that God created, we will have human flourishing at its highest level. So hold on to your seat. We're going to get to that. Number four, from eternal happiness... So it used to be, and if you read the literature, it's really clear, we want to be eternally happy in the next life and reasonably happy in this world. That's changed now to worldly happiness, a worldly reference point. Nothing is about God and what God thinks, but about happiness here in this world according to categories of oppression and injustice. But the biggest threat is climate change. Instead of the biggest threat being that people would be lost without salvation in Jesus and go and face their maker and be punished for their sins. The biggest threat is no longer that in cultural discourse and thought. Now it's become what is climate change going to do? And uh, I hope to jump into the whole climate change conversation in one of our uh, Sunday afternoon specials as well, because it's so important that we think clearly about this. And then lastly, from pursuing the truth to pursuing the narrative like it is a religion from pursuing the truth, like what's right, to pursuing the narrative. So, for example, <clears throat> if pursuing the truth is what really makes a male and a female, is it an XY chromosome and an X chromosome? What is it? The truth doesn't matter, the narrative does. And if the narrative is you can be whatever you want to be and feel however you want to feel, then that narrative becomes more important. Are you picking up what I'm saying, folks? Let me tell you what Alexander Solzhenitsyn, was a Russian dissident, lived under communism, and he was asked one day, what is the most important thing people can do to overcome communist thinking and Marxist thinking that was destroying that society? And he said, just do one thing, live not by lies. Live by truth, not by narratives. So, uh, summing up, (laughs) how are you doing on the tough-minded part? I hope you're going to be tough-minded. You're gonna to have to be, to be faithful to King Jesus and you can be because the hope that we have is so worth it. Uh, I'll just remind you again, why? Because it's true. Number one, it's true. Number two, we have promises given by God for us in eternity that are too precious not to focus on. Number three, our identity is different because we are in Christ, our, our whole essence, our whole lives Our whole experience of God's kingdom here and now is very different than everybody around us. And number four, God's providence is with us. Do you know that no matter what challenges you face, let's not be angry, let's not be frustrated. People are being deceived all around us. They're thinking things that are crazy and ungodly and demonic. But when we live amongst them, let's not be angry at them. They're not the enemies. They're victim of the enemy, which is Satan Satan. And let's be filled with hope because no matter what we go through, no matter where we go, no matter what it's like, we have the hope that God is going to turn it into our good. And in the midst of us, goodness and mercy will be following us all the days of our lives. Agreed? Yeah. So I just want to say today and through this series, let's not focus on practical and shallow living let's do a deeper dive. I can tell you this, and if I were to sum up everything I could say uh, about living in a progressive world, the number one thing to do is be in Scripture every day because it describes how our minds should think. It's discipling our minds in God's truth. So be in Scripture every day. Be at church on Sundays. Be in a tea group or a home group. Uh, We have a podcast. that We started, I started it, For this exact purpose, to help us all think biblically. I'm doing it actually with my friend Anthony Walker. It's called Scripture in Black and White. It's a double entendre because he's black and I'm white, but more importantly, Scripture is far more black and white than people think.
0: Here at the Real Life Theology Podcast, hosted by Renew.org, we are just really glad you joined us today. Thank you so much for supporting Renew and what we're doing here and trying to help leaders all around the world continue to have strong biblical theology that points to Jesus-style disciple-making.
3: We'll see you again next week.